0: Pastor Mike, this morning. Good morning, everyone. We are um, in the midst of a study of uh, the book of Revelation. We're looking at the uh, letters that are to the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor. There's a couple of things I'd like to remind you about. Number one, um, these are direct messages from the Lord Jesus Christ to those churches. And they are prophetic messages. In some ways, they're not really letters. They're prophetic words that are given to these churches. And prophetic words have the ability to lay bare the secrets of the hearts of the the listeners. And so Jesus has been speaking to uh, all of these churches. We come to the sixth church. Uh, the Church of Ancient Philadelphia. Let me tell you a little bit about Philadelphia. Um, it was originally founded around 180 B.C. It's about 30 miles south of Sardis that we looked at last week. It's, it's in the area we now call Turkey, but in those days it was called Asia Minor. Uh, an interesting beginning to this, this story There was a Greek man who was sent to establish this city as a missionary outpost of Greek culture and Greek language. It was set up originally as a trade route to the east. It became a very important point between western goods and eastern goods and and became very wealthy and prosperous. The man who founded this city was known, had a, a... kind of a fame for the love that he had for his brother. So his nickname was Philadelphus, which means lover of your brother. And so he loved his brother, and they said, well, he loves his brother so much, let's name the city after him. And it became Philadelphia. But the name caught on. People started liking that name, and there were actually five cities or six in the ancient world that were named Philadelphia. The uh, modern city of Amman in Jordan was at one time named Philadelphia as well. And there's still some, uh, some of the, the old uh, ancient ruins of the, of the city still visible there when it was called Philadelphia. But this one is actually in Turkey. And uh, it, it, it became a place that was also known for devastation because the city was founded on an earthquake center. And they had numerous earthquakes there. In 17 A.D., during the the time of Christ, in 17 A.D., a devastating earthquake hit Philadelphia and utterly destroyed the city. This message is probably written somewhere around 90 A.D. So they have rebuilt the city but the people of Philadelphia live in fear of another devastating earthquake. You can see this a little bit. We're going to read this message together. But one of the promises that Jesus makes to the people of Philadelphia is I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. So he's, what he's saying is this though you live in a city with insecurity, I will make you secure. I will make you unshakable. I will make it to where you are not temporarily safe, but eternally safe. So the idea of the fear of earthquakes, the fear of devastation is present in this city. Now, let's read together the message that Jesus sends to this church. This would have been read on a Sunday morning in a worship service just like ours. And the messenger would have been sent from the Apostle John, and he would read this letter, this message from Jesus. Let's read out loud together the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. And they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first thing that I'd like you to grab hold of with me today is this promise that is given to this church in Philadelphia, I believe, is a promise that he's giving to you. See, he says, Jesus says, he has the key. He has the key and he has the authority of the Messiah, of the, of the son, descendant of David. He has a kingly authority, has a kingly anointing. And that what he opens cannot be shut and what he shuts cannot be open. And he speaks to us, his church. And it's the only time in all of the letters that he gives a promise like this. He says, I set before you an open door that none can close. I-, I want you to hear that. I feel like this is very, I know that, you know, you may not be used to the supernatural working in the service or whatever it is. But I think this is a prophetic word for individuals today. That where there are challenges in your life, where there are difficulties, where it seems like you're hitting a wall. And this could be financially, it could be relationship, it could be career, it could be your, uh, you know, uh, anything where you, you just seem like you're always hitting a wall. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has the key. What I open cannot be shut. And what I shut cannot be open. And he's saying to his church, I set before you an open door. It's a door of opportunity. It's a door of blessing. It's the, it's the word that he gave that John wrote when he says, you know, I'm the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. It's the only church that he says this to. They're only Out of the seven churches, there are only two faithful churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And so in many ways, friends, if we'll pay attention today, if you'll get yourself in alignment, then there's an open door that no one can shut. So one of the things that you have to grasp here, and and one of the commentators wrote it this way, he says, this is written to a church that needs no warning, that needs no chastening, that needs no threatening, because here you have a true church. Two of the seven churches have nothing condemning them in the letter because they are truly a spirit-filled, regenerate church. The church of Smyrna, the church at Philadelphia, were faithful, godly, loyal, effective. And we see through these two churches models throughout all of history, church history, of good, solid, spirit-filled, faithful churches. This is the template. (laughs) Uh, You know, maybe this is my... my, academic side of this, but it's always fascinated me that people want to draw a design for the church from the world, from a business model, from an empire model, or whatever it is. You know, the only model of a church that we really have that works is the model that Jesus gives. What Jesus commends is worth having in every generation, in every season, in every uh, epoch that we live in. And, and, and what we should be looking for, and the longer I live, the more true this becomes, is I want what Jesus commends. I don't care what anybody else commends. And so when he's, he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia, he has nothing bad to say about them. He only has good. So this should get our attention. So I, I, just in the beginning, I would say that these two things. There's a promise there's a, that he can set before you an open door. And then there's also the possibility that the commendation that he gives to Philadelphia, he gives to you. These are both worth paying attention to. But in order to come into alignment with this opportunity, in order to come into alignment with this possibility, then you have to align yourself with Jesus as he reveals himself. It cannot be Jesus of your imagination. It can't just be Jesus, you know, of of your creation. It has to be Jesus of revelation. And here's how he reveals himself. He always reveals an, an essential aspect of his character or his attribute that always refers to what he wants to do for you. And so, in other words, if it may means something to you, To say, I want an open door, then you have to receive that he reveals himself as the one who opens the door, but he's a holy one. He says, the one who speaks to you is holy. Now, number one, if he's calling himself the holy one, he's saying, I am God. not just a moral teacher. I'm not just a philosopher. I'm not just a good person to follow. He's saying, I am God. Because even the demons knew that. They called him the Holy One of God. And so there's there's that aspect of of absolute holiness that only belongs to God. And then in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, Peter, the apostle, writes and he says, The Holy One who called you says, Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Hmm. So in order for the open door that no one can shut, there has to be an alignment in your life with the holiness of the Holy One. A lot of times people will say to me, why does my life go so horribly? And then you look and you go, because your behavior is deplorable. <laughs> I, 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 and in some ways, we make decisions that bring curses. And then we wonder why they're curses. Curses. Now some of this stuff is just ends up being logic that if you want the kind of supernatural openings that only the Holy One can provide, then you have to align yourself with his holiness now here's here's the problem as i as I preach this and teach this. A lot of times I I remember back even to my own childhood when I was living a double life because I was a church kid, and there were strokes at church for being a good kid. But I also was a wicked, rebellious kid. And so to one group of people, I showed myself as holy and righteous and goody-two-shoes. And to another group of people, I was rebellious, profane, and lustful. And so when I would hear Jesus say, be holy, it was as if I, uh, guilt would come over me and I would begin to say, I'm not holy. And then if the service was really good, a lot of times I would come to the altar and I would say, I'm going to try to be holy, Jesus, and with all my heart, and I meant it. And I'd pray, I'd get on my knees, I'd weep and all of that, and I'd walk away and I'd be less holy than I was when I came to the altar. Because what I was asking him was wrong. I was asking him to empower my will. I was asking him to give me will power. And he was asking of me to have a yielded will, to have a dependent will, to surrender. I wasn't surrendering. I was just wanting more power. You see, and in some ways, see, if he answers that prayer, then the glory for the power goes to your will. Look at me, how good I am. Look at me, how righteous I am. Which, again, it is the appearance of righteousness, but is actually unholy. Remember the last letter. You may not have been here. It's worth it to go back and listen. The last letter is to Sardis. Sardis was a church that looked holy, looked righteous, looked alive. Everybody thought, whoa, Sardis is a great church. But the only one that matters says, Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So they had the appearance of holiness. They had behavior management in place. But internally, they were dead. Well, I don't want a reputation of holiness. I want holiness. I don't want the hope of an open door. I want an open door. Gosh, you guys got, got quiet all of a sudden. Anybody else want that? So then how, how do we come to the place that we understand? Because the best you and I can do is just try more. And the problem with a lot of people in church is they're trying to be better people. You'll never be better people, people. <laughs> <laughs> you're selfish. Uh-oh. You know, you're in secret if nobody's looking. Uh-oh. I could go through the list, but I'll stop there. <laughs> you. But you're also Normal. Like every other person. Understand something. When Jesus says the holy one writes to you, he's not saying the normal one writes to you. See, holiness means otherness. Holiness means separated, apart. And holiness is beautiful. Holiness is glorious. It's weighty. It's magnificent. It's unchangeable. Holiness is the character of God. Of all the attributes in the scripture, there's only one where it's three times repeated. Even though it is the essence that God is love, you don't hear him say, love, love, love. But you do hear the angels say, holy, holy, holy. See, that's his beauty. That's it. When the angels see him, they know he's love. But when they see him, they go, you are so other. We cannot say it just one time. We have to say it three times. And then they finish the verse, the whole earth is full of his glory. And then they go back and go, holy, holy, holy again. Why is that? Because it's other. Now, can you grasp that part with me? That's part one. Part two is the invitation of Jesus to his church. The invitation of Jesus to you and me as followers of Christ is that we are united to the other. We are in union with the other. In other words, everything He is through the Holy Spirit is now resident in you. Everything He has is now resident in you. Our life is not in our willpower. Our life is in His Spirit. Let me, let me illustrate what I mean by this. I'll give you two illustrations here. Number one, most people begin to get the sense they need to be holy. And one of the things that people often realize is they need to learn how to be patient. Most of us are not patient by nature. As a matter of fact, I've never seen a driver in the tri-state area who's patient by nature. Even passive people behind the will become demons. All right, so people, people pray, and they go, oh, God, give me patience. And the next thing happens is all hell breaks loose. And then they go, I'll never pray that again. It's because it's the wrong prayer. When you say, God, give me patience, you're saying, God, give me willpower. Make my will stronger. Your will is already too strong. That's the problem. An independent will is what is the source of all unholiness. And it keeps you, by being independent in your will, it keeps you from holiness. See, if you get this, you begin to realize The Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident in every believer. He has all the patience of Christ. Therefore, because He is resident in me, I have all the patience of Christ. I activate that not by willpower, but by faith. It's not not that I have patience apart from Christ. I have patience because Christ, Christ is never apart from me. The other dwells in me. I am now united to the other. So I'm no longer normal. (laughs) It's a rough day to be me up here today. (laughs) From my wife's prayer letter to... (laughs) <laughs> See, th- when, when we, you know this, when we say normal, we're saying average. We're saying like everybody else. Be holy as I am holy. It's not a call that suddenly your behavior will become, you know, uh, so righteous or so good that everybody goes, Ooh, wow, look at that guru of righteousness or something. It's rather that you and Christ become inseparable, that you're so dependent on him and your life is so flowing with him. I have seen people who get as they get older and they're Christians, they're less like Christ. Age is not the issue. But I have been around people that they can tell the stories of their life. And all you do at the end is praise Jesus and you don't even notice that person. Because it's no more I, but Christ who lives in me. And yet it's still that person. It's the best version of that person. See, if you connect yourself, as Jesus is saying here, to the other, your ordinary self becomes extraordinary because of him. Now, it it also, there's a second illustration I want to give you because it's it's so practical as well. Because he's other, he's not stuck in your mortgage. Because he's other, he's not stuck in your bad marriage or your bad family. Because he's other, he's not, he's not subject to the whims of the economy. Because he's other, you can trust that what he's doing and promising is not dependent on anything that's going on around you. For example... As a church, we have, we have staked everything on the promise, my God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We don't say, my God shall supply our needs according to Wall Street and what's going on with the stock market. You, you, you. <laughs> but let me tell you, many people, they, because they're mired in the ordinary, then they're wanting God to change. Oh, please don't let the stock market go down. Oh, please don't let me lose my job. Oh, please change this husband or this wife so I can tolerate them kind of thing. And they're they're mired in the ordinary. But see, he said, I'm the holy one. I'm the other. I'm the extraordinary. So that even if the stock market goes down, his promise to you is... Your needs will be met. Even if it seems like everything around you is falling apart because of him, because of the other that you are connected to, then you can say, not just as a slogan, but as a testimony, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But to see, this is a faith issue, not a behavior issue. And if you make it a behavior issue, then you'll come to the altar and say, you want me to be holy, I'm going to try to change. And you will fail. Because the goal isn't to make you a better person. It's to make you a new person. It's not to give you a second chance, but a new heart. Because the truth is, if you get a second chance, you'll blow it in a new way. Okay? But this this is where the open door comes from. It doesn't come from your circumstances or the ordinary. It comes from the other, the holy other. When Jesus says, I am holy, he's saying, I am other. And it's his weight, his beauty, his glory, his riches, everything about him. And then because you are a believer, he has come to take residence in you. Now, one of the stories that, that at least spoke to me on this is, is a, a pastor was telling about a counseling appointment, and a man came to him and said, Pastor, I just have to confess, I've been having an affair with my wife for a number of years. And, uh, and he said, finally, I, just, I, I, got a, I came clean to my wife, and I want to get right with God. And he tells the story how that whenever his wife was gone, he would still he would take his mistress to their bed but on the way he and the mistress felt uncomfortable about the pictures that were there of him and his wife together so they would turn the pictures around or put them in the drawer or get rid of them because it made them uncomfortable to have a other presence come on you could say a holy presence and other presents while they were doing what they were doing. And finally it got to him in the guilt and the shame and all of that. See, the problem for many of us believers is we're still doing what we think will satisfy us. We're still having our affairs. We're still acting independently. We're still acting disobediently. And we wonder why we feel so empty. It's because he cannot be a guest in the house. At some point, there has to be an exchange of ownership. At some point, it cannot be that the Holy Spirit is the honored guest every now and then. At some point, it has to be his house. And then, now, this is the part that some believers, I think, don't think through. But see, if it's his house, and he says, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, then there's never been anyone who knows how to cleanse a temple like Jesus. And so the problem with most of us, we're trying to sweep out. We get Swiffer, you know, all that stuff. And it just the dust keeps piling in, you know. But see, when you really get this, that I am united to a holy other, and he comes in, and he cleanses, and you begin to look to him and look beyond even the past or whatever has gone on, you realize no one is excluded from this. It's not about the extraordinary people who follow Jesus with their their whole hearts. It's ordinary people who follow Jesus. It's desperate people. It's broken people. It's those who realize, I can't do it myself. So in other words, any of us could start right today and experience a holiness that opens a door that none can shut. Whatever it is, physical addictions, chemical addictions, it could be mental issues, it could be all kinds of things. And you begin to say, Lord Jesus, you're not just the guest. You're the owner. And you just write the title over to him. And then all you have to say, cleanse your temple. Now, I'm not saying it's that easy. I'm saying it's that simple. Two different things. (laughs) What follows might not be easy. But how do you get, in a sense, how do you get beyond, you know, this, where you just get the opening? Well, he reveals the second thing about himself, and he says, the one who is true. Now, this morning that expensive seminary education I went through is going to pay off. Okay, there's a Greek word there that is translated to one who is true, but the meaning of it isn't just that he speaks things that are true or that he doesn't lie. The meaning of it is the one who is genuine, the one who is authentic. I I am absolutely convinced after watching and being part of church for all of these years of my life, I'm convinced that many people have rejected Jesus, but have never met Jesus. They've rejected whatever expression of church or religion they've been in, but they've never met Jesus because Jesus is genuine. Jesus is authentic. Okay, He's the real thing. And those of us who have encountered Jesus, not just through the teaching of people or or, or through the theology or anything else, but those of us who have truly had an encounter with Jesus know I don't want anything else. He's genuine. He's real. I mean, a lot of my life, even when I was a missionary and I was a pastor, a lot of my um, following of Jesus was because of the teaching of other people. And it was uh, there was a day there was like an eye opening day when I was I was studying for a sermon. And someone asked some questions I could not answer. Because I didn't have that kind of immediate sort of encounter with the living Christ. I mean, I believed in him. I loved him. I loved what I knew about him. But there wasn't this sense of immediacy. It was almost as if I knew him through intermediaries. And so I remember going, Lord, I, this 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 will not do. And I had had, since I was about 12 years old, I had had encounters with the manifest presence of Jesus in my life, but no one was ever talking about that. So I just thought, well, those were rare, and I don't know how to have a continual intimacy with him. And so I remember Lisa and I, uh, two things happened, and they both happened in our our room uh, in our house. Uh, The first one was that I was so sick and tired of being sort of the spiritual schizophrenic Of, on the one hand, loving the holiness of God, but being utterly uh, enslaved to lust and and, and selfishness and all kinds of things. Frustration and anger and all of that. And thinking, God, I can't go on this way and living this double life. (laughs) One thing Lisa used to always say to me is, you have to preach every week. Because she says, you're a much better person because you have to be honest when you're up there preaching. Because that, that was just my nature is even if I was walking in the flesh six days, one day I was completely honest. <laughs> she said, you're a much better person. And I, there was this part of me, I just could not stand that there was, there was a double life there. So I pursued that night. I just said, either heal me or take me home. And about 6 a.m., I heard the voice of the Lord. And he said, by my stripes, you were healed. And I knew that it wasn't. Yes, yeah, thank you. I knew, I knew, listen, I knew it wasn't, I wasn't healed at 6 a.m. I was healed on the cross. His, his stripes didn't take place at 6 a.m. April 1993. His stripes took place at Calvary. And so what happened, listen, this is, this is the way the Lord has shown it to me, is I had a debit card with an account for healing. But I never activated the pen. I had it to my account. But that morning, I activated it by faith. And it became real to me. He became real to me. And then I began to to take seriously. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I mean, that's a promise. And so instead of infrequently, it's saying you can day by day, moment by moment, know the intimacy with Christ. The manifest presence of Christ. And so Lisa and I were going through a very serious trial in our lives. And we were we were praying together. And we both got on our knees in our bedroom. And we said, we're not getting up until you meet with us. Now, those of you who believe, okay, God is everywhere. Of course he's everywhere. That's his omnipresence. But Jesus wants it to be more than omnipresence. You know, Jesus is present when two Muslims pray. Jesus is present in in, uh, an omnipresent way when anyone, even when people cuss, he's there. Even if the pastor's not there, he's there. Because, see, whenever they find out I'm a pastor, they stop cussing around me. (laughs) But his promise is, if two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst midst of you. That's not omnipresence. That's the genuine manifest presence of Christ. And so Lisa and I began to experience and realize he wanted this for us all the time, not just some of the time. Because he's genuine. He's authentic. He wants it to be genuine for you and authentic for you. All right, here's, here's here's the prerequisite for that. You have to be genuine. You have to be authentic. You have to be radically honest. You can't have secrets. You can't pretend. You can't sweep things under the rug. In some way, shape, or form, if you really want an open door that none can close, then you can't be hearing a voice saying to you, if they really knew you, they wouldn't love you. You can't be hearing a voice. You can't tell people that. Because that's not genuine. It's inauthentic. If there are secrets, if there are things that you can't let out, then you're compromised. And the door that you want open, the opportunity that you want open shuts. And so what I find is most Christians are truthful, but they're not honest. They don't tell lies, but they don't necessarily tell the whole truth. And so there's a a genuineness that is true of Jesus, and he says, this is what you need to have as well. I, I would even recommend that, that there's some place where you can say these things out loud. <laughs> I'm such a blunt guy, I always wonder why anybody comes to count for counseling with me. But n- it's not unusual that they will come in and say, I will talk about this, but we won't talk about that. And I always go, well, that's the only thing that matters then. Whatever you cannot or will not talk about, that's the only thing that matters. That's the screen door on the submarine you know that's the that's that's the thing that's going to sink the ship. you know it's just there's everything else is airtight, but this is wide open, and there's some sense in that which is genuine cannot be compromised and the letters throughout here. That we've been studying—that's the issue. They compromise. The struggle itself, Jesus commends. He honors those who struggle in their brokenness, with their sexuality, with their with their their thoughts, with their behavior. He honors those when he comes after you is when you have compromised and stopped struggling. And what I mean by compromise. It's not, not the interchange that goes on where I give some and you give some and we, and, and we come to an agreement. I'm not talking about that kind of compromise. I'm talking about the compromise where you have something genuine mixed with something inferior. For example, yesterday I flew from Atlanta to Newark. I did not want a single compromised part on that plane, especially the brakes as it landed. Because if it's compromised, it means it will fail. Now, you, you guys are kind of quiet. Are you with me a little bit here? Are you hearing what I'm saying? See, in other words, the Holy One says you've got to unite to the other. And the Holy One says it has to be genuine. It has to be authentic. In other words, it has to be honest. Or it is compromised. I can't tell you how many people go to religion. Religion is compromised. It's a mixture of you and Him. And anything that's a mixture is compromised. It is either all Christ or it is not genuine. It is either all Christ or it's not authentic. The compromised will always fail. Always let you down. So Jesus says, I'm the genuine one. And here's what happens when you get get into that union with him in terms of his holiness, in terms of uh, a union with the otherness, and a union with that which is genuine and authentic. He says, here's here's what he sees and commends in the church. Now, before I uh, lay out these these four that he has real quickly, um, let me just, can I be really pointed about this? If he, the Holy One, says that you're holy because of him, do not resist it. If he calls you a saint, do not resist it. If he calls you brother, he calls you sister, do not resist it. It isn't about your worthiness. It's about his worthiness. It's not about, it's not about whether you deserve it or you've merited it. He deserved it for you. He was treated as you deserve so that now you can be treated as he deserves. See, it is not wrong for you to begin to realize, because of Christ, I am holy. Because of Christ, I am righteous. And to begin to think in that way. And when you think in that way, guess what happens? Behavior begins to manifest. Because you're beginning to believe Him, because you're beginning to trust Him. And here's the, here's the behavior that He commends in Philadelphia. He says, though you're small in terms of your resources, you're mighty and you're powerful in the spirit. Zechariah 4 says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So you began to realize it's not how big we are. It's not our past, how educated we are, how strong we are, but how dependent on the spirit are we. And Sardis, they were dependent on their programs and they were dead. In Philadelphia, they were dependent on the Spirit, and they were powerful. And then Jesus says, obedience. There's something that happens when Jesus is genuine to you, when He's the other to you, when you're connected to Him, that you begin to be predisposed to say yes. And something amazing begins to happen when you're an obedient person, an obedient family, and you're an obedient church. There are things that you have not yet seen, opportunities that are waiting for you that the only thing that's keeping you from it is the door of obedience. Then the third one. He commends them because they are loyal. I don't know about all of you in here, but for me, loyalty is probably one of the biggest attributes that I ever see in a person. The fact they have your back. The fact that what they say to your face, they're not saying something else in the parking lot. That, that sense of loyalty, that they stand up for you, that they don't let other people say things about you that are not true. And Jesus himself commends the church at Philadelphia because when they were tested, when they could have denied him, they chose, however, to hold fast to their confession. Now this is in direct contrast to the Apostle Peter, who when he was confronted with a, a, a test of loyalty, three times he denied. The third time, he, he basically cursed the woman who said it to him and said, I have nothing to do with that man. And then he heard the rooster crow. Now, how did Jesus restore him? He didn't restore Peter by saying you were a bad boy. He restored him this way. He said, do you love me? So in other words, love for Jesus results in loyalty. Do you love me? Do you love me? He said it three times. The same number of times that Peter denied him, the same number of times that the Lord restored him was saying, do you love me? Loyalty, fidelity in that sense is, is the very manifestation of genuine love for Jesus. And then the last one. The reason that I gave you the illustration about patience is that Jesus says that the reason that he commends the Philadelphia church is because they, like him, endured patiently. Do you know what? When the world is not going the way you want it to go, the only way that you can endure patiently, one is if the patience of Jesus is being manifest in you. But two is that you realize this is not your home. You are not primarily citizens of the United States of America. You are primarily citizens of heaven. Your king will never be dethroned. Now, look what he promises if you walk through that open door. I love these promises. He says, the people who are against you, in verse 9, they will come to know that I have loved you. You understand something. You don't even have to defend yourself anymore. You don't have to protect yourself anymore because the one who is your defender will make those who attack you, who are adversarially towards you, he will make it known that he loves you to them. And secondly, it says, I'll keep you from the hour of testing or trial. Here is, I believe, what he means by this. There's a future trial coming. There's a future test coming, and and everybody in the world is going to have to go through that test, he's saying. But sometimes when you're in a school, it could be your high school, or college, if you have done so well all year long, you don't have to take the final exams. I will not ask for hands of those who did that. See, the purpose behind that is, is a reward, yes. But it's also, there's a deeper purpose, and that is, you don't need to take a test if it's already clear that the character is there, that the the knowledge is there, that the understanding is there. What Jesus is saying here is that any test you're going through is developing character. Any trial that you're going through is developing you as a weighty man or woman of God, as a person of faith. And when you get to that place where your character is gold and your, your heart is proven, no more tests are necessary. In other words, the Lord will never, ever waste a minute of your time. So why is it that we waste so many of our sorrows, particularly on feeling sorry for ourselves, when He's saying, in a sense, everything is designed to bring you to the destiny that He has for you and to make you the person you always wanted to be. There's a great old book. It's called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. You understand that your real tears, your real pain, Jesus has caught every one of them and has stored them up in heaven because every painful thing you've ever been through, every loss you've ever suffered, it all matters to Him. And He will not allow one more minute of humiliation or trial or pain than what you need to become the person you're eternally destined to become. Listen. You see it. You see it in the cross because Jesus only suffered as long as was necessary to pay for the sins of the world and then his suffering ceased. His humiliation only lasted till all the curse was broken for even as he was taken down from the cross he was not taken to the pauper's grave he was taken to a rich man's grave. His exaltation began as soon as his humiliation was over. God is strategic, friends. Are you with I'm, i got get chills thinking about this right now. The enemies who think they have it over you, he's going to show that he loves you. And then he will not let a single test that will not bring about what you need to be the man or the woman that you're destined to be for eternity. And not a sorrow will be wasted. Maybe this is not the most exciting of the letters, okay? Maybe this isn't the most exciting sermon you ever heard, all right? But will you hear this for me? Five of them are about what the church does wrong. Smyrna is about how the church is going to die. This is the only letter where we see what Jesus really values. He's telling us what to do right my ears are wide open to him right now because i don't just want to not do wrong i want my investment in that which we he will commend so my ears are open my heart is open because this is the church i want to be this is the follower i want to be i want to hear what philadelphia heard they're not a perfect church They're not a perfect church, but they definitely are a church commended by the holy and true one. Will you stand with me? Is this making sense to you today? See, would you close your eyes for a minute? Would you allow the Lord to bring to mind the challenges that you're facing? Would you hear this word, whatever that challenges challenges, and it may be a picture, maybe you have a wall in front of you, maybe there's a mountain to climb or a river to cross, whatever it is, the Lord says, I set before you an open door that none can close. This is his word to you, his child. This is his word to you, his brother, his sister. This is his word to us as a church. It doesn't matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. He is other than. And He's genuine. And He has the key. And whatever you've been shut up in, He can open up. And whatever needs to be open, He can open it so that you can walk into a new day of opportunity, blessing. Would you take hold of that right now? I, I know I'm running over. We're going to get in trouble with parking and all kinds of things. We're going to need an open door for parking in a minute. I'm aware of those things, even though I'm trouncing all over them. But I really today this has come heavy on me. An open door, not an open door you made through your efforts, a supernaturally open door. Oh, you can't get better than that. Would you receive it? If it means something to you to with a spouse, would you just take their hand? To a family member or a friend, whatever it might be, that this wouldn't be something you're there alone with, but that you're saying, I'm believing, I'm believing this is a word for me today. I'm going to align myself with the holy other. I'm going to get genuine. I'm going to get real. I'm going to get authentic in this. And I'm going to become that person I always wanted to be because of Christ resident in me through the Holy Spirit. Lord, seal what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's anything you'd like to pray through or pray about, we got our leaders up here. They'll pray with you. We'll see you next week. God bless you.